Hey listeners, I'm Sage. I'm Sunflower. I'm Iris. And I'm Foxglove. And this is And They Were Roommates, a podcast about modern love, life, and everything in between. Disclaimer, we are not experts at being adults. We've just lived through a lot. And this week, we're going to be talking about hobbies, making your brain pay with those good neurotransmitters, and managing chronic pain in your relationship. Let's get into it. Hobbies. Do we want to start with why hobbies are, are like, actually legit, legitimately good for you? Yeah, give us some science. Give us some fun facts. Some science. Fox. Science at us. Um, so the first thing I'm going to preface this with is that this is not me, a person with a bunch of mental illnesses, telling anyone else with a bunch of mental illnesses that if if you knit, your depression will go away. Because I've heard that, and it's not true. It's not how mental illnesses work. Yeah, it's not how anything oh. works, actually. Uh, I've never heard of any illness that will be cured by knitting. Man, I Which want is just knitting sad. to cure at least something. I want knitting yeah. to cure several things. <laughs> 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 However, the thing that I am saying is that when your therapist or, or something is like, oh, knitting or like whatever fucking craft knitting is what I do a lot of, will do some beneficial things to your brain, they're not actually just fucking making that up off the top of their head because um, there's... Everyone buckle in for a little bit of neuroscience. So there are two primary neurotransmitters involved here. They're dopamine and serotonin. Serotonin is what we generally consider like, I don't know, like it's a it's like a calm pleasure hormone. And it's usually what you're deficient in if you have uh, severe depression. If you're on medication for your depression, you're probably on an SSRI, which manages serotonin in your brain. And then there's dopamine, which is also a pleasure hormone that specifically pays out um, as a reward for finishing tasks and like as a way to provide motivation. It, it's what tells your brain to motivate itself. Brains are more complicated than this. I've boiled it down very far. <laughs> um, but uh, an example of, of dopamine issues is if you have, for example, ADHD, like myself, you're the reason you struggle to start and complete tasks is because ADHD affects the way that your brain pays out dopamine. Um, so for me, it's hard to do tasks with a lot of small pieces because my brain will not give me the, you know, punch card of like, you did part of a task. Good job. Here's like a little bit of dopamine for you. That's not how my brain works. So I just you kind can of have, have a to- little bit of dopamine as a treat as a treat. <laughs> As a little snack. And for obvious the reasons... good, good brain chemicals. <laughs> for obvious reasons, that does a number on my ability to concentrate. Um, so ADHD medications, from what we can tell, affect how your brain manages dopamine. And hobbies. And hobbies are a way... <laughs> Just going to pull in for a landing. <laughs> I, 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 let me live. They were getting I, to the point. <laughs> eventually, in a roundabout I way. took my medication today. Let me live. <laughs> Um, Tell it to give you the dopamine. <laughs> uh, the advantage of hobbies on like a neurochemical level is that especially if you're doing something concrete or something that has um, some kind of like waypoint, like if you're writing, then you wrote like, like you've 10 pages something. or if you're playing a video game and you hit a save point or if you're knitting and you finish a hat, um, you're you're finishing a task, which means you can kind of like jack into that brain circuitry for like, please give me the positive hormones because I did the things that make you happy and I finished a task and I made a thing. I especially recommend hobbies that produce something physical, like something concrete. Crafting. Crafts are good or short of that. Like I, when I'm really depressed, I write by hand instead of on my computer because like you can also get that drop from like finishing a page. 
And the reason I go through this entire ramble is because today we're going to talk about hobbies and we're going to talk about things that we do that like bring us joy alone and that we do as a group to like not just bring us closer together like we've talked about before, but like because we enjoy doing them and because you're making your brain dump a bunch of pleasure hormones while you're around the people you like enforces that relationship on a neurochemical level and it's good for you. And the reason I've done this whole ramble is that I really want to clarify hobbies are not bullshit. They're like, they're good for you. They're an actual concrete thing you're doing to help yourself and like improve your quality of life. So like, I understand that we live in a capitalist hellscape that says that anything that's not your actual paying job is not worthwhile, but like hobbies, they are good for you. They make you better at the other things you do. They make you better at your relationships. They're just good for you. Thank you for listening to my TED talk. (laughs) One of my uh, favorite ways to make my brain pay out the good, good dopamine is video games, because video games have nice little things with checkboxes for your quest objectives or the other stuff that you're supposed to be doing. And every time that the game checks one of those things off, it feels great because real life does not have checkboxes for quests and nothing unless, is ever complete. Unless you have a girlfriend who really likes making to-do lists and that's oh, real life questing. Sun <laughs> will sometimes, like I write myself to-do lists, but sometimes Sun will write me to-do lists and I just, I feel so accomplished when I finish them. <laughs> I need like my own little spotlight so I can sit in it like the wizard cat, like the glowy wizard yeah. cat that gives you quest items. We'll get you a neon exclamation point to hang over your desk. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That'd be so good. One of... My other favorite things about video games, though, in addition to checking off little quest tick boxes, is uh, observable progress in competency. For instance, Mm -hmm. you're in a racing game and you want to get faster going around a track, and one day you are super slow, and after a few more laps, you get faster. And getting better at things is also extremely satisfying. This is also part of why I play so many games on my phone is because, like, yes, I am on level 6,000 of a match three game. That's not a joke. But um, (laughs) on the other hand, I'm on level 6,000 of something. And so, like... You've made it to the end of some of these games when I did not even know that there was an end. And I am constantly shocked. Dopamine. It's nice. Especially, like, finishing levels. Mm-hmm delicious one of the other things that you mentioned earlier was writing which also happens to be one of my hobbies and the rush from completing a chapter of anything that i'm working on or even just like writing a set of words by the end of any given day and just seeing the words on paper and being like hey i wrote a thing that exists in the world i'm never going to show it to anyone but it's there yeah is it's also very satisfying. I, I admittedly struggle more with like that specific issue because again, I have I have you only get dopamine for finished tasks as a whole disorder. Mm. But uh, I write fan fiction when I'm really struggling to produce original fiction because then I can like finish a thing in a reasonable length of time and post it, and then people give me validation for it, and that's nice. That's a nice hack. Mm. Also, handwriting I it, I do a lot when I'm like really struggling to handle like. The fact that writing on a screen doesn't actually make my brain tell me I've done anything. (laughs) Um, Because writing by hand means that I have like six pages full of writing. Son, you should tell us about drawing and coloring and stuff. Yeah, you're an actual art person. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) Not really. Um, (laughs) You do art, which like, that makes you an art person. I get happiness out of having colors. I don't know if that makes me an art person. Um, (laughs) Sure it does. Yeah, I started doing things like 
Honestly, I really like the, like, easy stuff, the, like, either just coloring in, like, an actual legitimate coloring book or, like, I've been doing paint by numbers, which are really great. I need smaller ones that I feel like I can actually, like, complete and look at completely because the one I've had I've been working on for, like, since the thing is massive Christmas. Which, like, it looks great, but, like, wow. I think you got it I got that in April. Yeah, no, that's... It was for my birthday. Coming up on a year on that one. And in your defense, you didn't start it right away because you were still in college, so... Yeah, it was, like, a a fun treat for me for my graduation. And also, like, finding a space in the apartment to work on that uninterrupted is, like, was a challenge. A trick. Is a challenge, yeah. Well, yeah, that's fair. Like, it's, it, yeah. it takes up all the space that I have at, like, my desk where I actually do my job working from home. So, like, it has to be put away every day, and it's hard to, like, take out a thing, which takes a bunch of time. Anyway, drawing is really good because it has a bunch of colors. Uh, colors are really good. And I've also found that, like, I got an iPad for a graduation present because my family's great. So I've been digitally drawing, which is less messy with less startup time, and that does hit the same, like... Ooh, I did a creative thing today, even though a lot of them I don't like. But even just like doing it and being like, you know, that's a tree. You would know that that's a tree. That they I are just identifiable made. trees, yes. Yeah. So like, I'm big on that. I'm also a pretty avid reader. And I will say like finishing books is like a real good Ooh, yeah. high for me. Yeah. <laughs> Likewise. Wow. I can't believe no one else got to that. Yeah. No. yeah that we, are, we are readers. Great rush. Yeah. Son and I read semi-constantly yeah (laughs) (laughs) and you are absolutely right it is the best iris tell us about what you do for fun i'm i think my hobby is collecting hobbies because (laughs) i love hobbies and i love doing a bunch of different things so i'll just cycle between different hobbies i've done embroidery i've done i love video games video games are always like an easy cycle back around to that uh I even tried sewing for a while. If it's a craft, I've probably tried it. At some point, by the way, we need to put up on Instagram a shot of the embroidered pillow that you made because, damn, Mm. it is gorgeous. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough how much I personally will never be embroidering a pillowcase because that seemed aggravating, but it's gorgeous. You have to, like... Yeah, you have to hold your hands inside the pillowcase the entire time because, of course, even though I own a sewing machine and could have sewed a pillow, I instead chose to buy a pillow that already existed for some reason that zipped up the back for some reason and then decided to put the design in a corner for some reason. And so that was a really long and tedious process. So I haven't embroidered since I made that really lovely pillow, but I'm going to get back around to it again because that's probably my craft. For listeners who can't see this, Iris is uh, making hand gestures of physically inhabiting the pillowcase, and it is very adorable. The TLDR of it is that Iris stabbed herself a lot doing that. I did. It was really, it was just a lot. But yeah, no, I really, embroidery is probably my favorite craft that I've picked up because of the fact that it's just, it's so um, lovely and detail-oriented and small and I like being able to embroider things that people who would want me to be like a proper young lady would be horrified by me embroidering (laughs) Mm -hmm. like curse words and (laughs) like be gay do crime this is also why I do embroidery you you guys know my grandmother went to finishing school right she would hate me I am so happy about it good (laughs) 
<laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, no, embroidery is really lovely. It's super cheap to pick up, which was um, really nice. And um, the projects that you can do can be like super duper practical, super duper just like something you hang on the wall in an embroidery hoop, something that you give as a gift. It's just really versatile. Um, and you can make uh, really small, quick projects or you can do really big, elaborate ones that take years. I saw somebody who embroidered an entire dress by hand and it took them like a decade and Terrifying. it's insane. Oh my and god, that beautiful. dress was incredible though. Yeah, yes. so I I think it's a really cool thing that's like kind of having a resurgence right now um, While that I think is locked up a really cool art form. Yeah, no, I think it's a really cool art form. But yeah, so I, I would say I'm a collector of hobbies, which is why I stayed cr- quiet because I've probably tried all of the other hobbies that all of my partners do <laughs> because I just, I realized recently that I just like trying new things. So my hobby is trying new hobbies. You're so cute. And then cycling back to the ones that I actually was pretty good at. You know, it's a hobby that I know we all do that we totally forgot about is also tarot. Oh, yeah. Oh, I do love tarot. I've done tarot since I was very wee. And you remain cursed from the first time you tried it. Mm, Yeah. um, The relevant detail to this conversation is that my family used to live in a cult. (laughs) We'll get into that later. But that's just how the story starts. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, short version is that um, someone started reading tarot for me when I was like eight months old, and um, then my parents left the cult when I was five-ish. Anyway, one of the very few things that I retained from it is that I do read a lot of tarot, and I sometimes read tarot for the whole group, and I really like doing that. I think it's I think it's um, a lot of fun, and I find it very soothing. And, and I You think- didn't tell anyone why you were cursed at it, Oh, um, yeah. So when I was eight months old, someone uh, in the cult read tarot for me against my mother's very specific instructions. And uh, they specifically, they pulled a bunch of major arcana and like, you know, royalty from the suits and stuff. But uh, specifically, they pulled, uh, ter- they pulled the tower for me, like for a self card. And I have pulled the tower with freakish regularity ever since then and it is as far as i'm concerned my permanent self card because every tarot deck i use is like hey would you like some chaos and i'm like no actually i'm i'm good thank you for the thank you for the offer though i'm good they have multiple times been multiple times been like oh yeah you know the tower is just kind of drawn to me and just cut a deck of cards and like the the fucking tower's been there and i've been like yeah that's just how you are as a person yep. that makes sense i mean it fits unfortunately yeah, it's, um it's a weird <laughs> trick it's a weird party trick to be able to pull out to be able to just like take a tarot deck cut it in half and then like pull the tower off the top but here look i found it <laughs> yeah and i think uh tarot is one of the things that we all enjoy doing together and there are plenty of other hobbies that we all enjoy doing together it would be really yeah. cool if we could talk about the difference between solo hobbies and sociable hobbies but because i think they're both important both of them are good for your brain Definitely. also yeah our I, I yeah i'll talk about stuff i don't know we're all on this like whole it's really great to have stuff that you do on your own that makes you happy without anybody else's input because it's great mm-hmm. to have your own things outside of your relationship that you do that make you happy and bring you joy um and also as fox very eloquently put with some neurotransmitter talk and everything earlier it's also really good to do things that make you happy around other people and through doing random things and throwing some hobbies at a wall the things that have stuck are mostly board games yeah we play a lot of board games we do and card games and card games (laughs) 
We play werewolf. We play a lot we of play... werewolf. We play a lot of hidden rule, hidden role yeah. games, hidden role games, where yeah. like you, Coop. yeah, you are something, Coop. and you lie to everyone about what you are. Um, <laughs> yeah, we really like lying to each other, don't we? We do. That's like it's an interesting feature of our shared experience. Traits. It's because we're so painfully honest with each other all of the time and we have we need to have a space for that like fun creative acting and line an outlet for our liars instincts yes exactly get the chaos out there so we can go back to being our normal disgustingly functional selves (laughs) exactly yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. we uh we really like games that involve like murder mystery-esque things like deception uh, deception is excellent deception in hong kong yeah, Deception in Hong Kong, that's a really good one that combines our love for hidden role games with our love for, tr- well, son's love for true crime primarily. My infinite love of true crime. Yeah. Oh, and also uh, games that involve stabbing each other in the back, like uh, Betrayal at the House on the Hill. We love that one. True. Oh, at, we do. It's just at House on the Hill, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Sure. You said that confidently enough. I believe you. <laughs> yeah. And we also love that one because it's like kind of hidden it's kind of role-playing game but with more direction so there's a lot less prep work yeah the number of times that fox has tried to kill us in that game i constantly end up the traitor in betrayal and it's delightful it's a lot of fun (laughs) we beat you the last time i was shocked yeah one time i took over the world as an ouroboros god Last time I lost as basically uh, Yogg-Sothoth from the Bifrost incident. Um, By the mechanisms. That is an incredibly niche poll, guys. Incredibly niche. All of my media references are very niche. (laughs) Also, if you don't know who the mechanisms are, maybe read the Wikipedia page first. They're weird. And then listen to the mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, they're a weird group, uh, but we love them. And uh, we also love tabletop RPGs, um, yes. tabletop role-playing games, especially uh, Fox and I have a long history of playing them together since back in college. Yep. We started with Dungeons & Dragons. I specifically really like to collect rule books and different uh, systems of like more niche ones. I recently um, got a really cool one that combines my love for linguistics with my love for tabletop top role-playing games called dialect Ooh, i like dialect super a lot. cool dialect was really yeah. fun yeah uh they're doing really amazing work on like language preservation and like um talking about how languages die and stuff really cool group please check them out i dm a lot i'm you should use full word in case of non-rpg okay players. that's a fair point uh in a D game, uh, you have someone who's the dungeon master and they're in charge of like writing the story and playing all the NPCs. They're they're the video game, basically, to the uh, <laughs> player characters. Um, and I do a lot of DMing because I am willing to do it. <laughs> and also because I actually enjoy writing stories. You're a good storyteller. Bless you. Yeah, yeah. but uh, mostly it's because the running joke is that everyone wants to play D&D, but no one wants to be the dungeon master. <laughs> It's a lot of work. It is. Yeah, we've been having a lot of fun doing that sort of stuff. Uh, Some other things we all do together include uh, Sun and I especially love a co-op video game, especially a puzzle game. We're super into that. Or platformers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We really enjoy doing that. But generally, we all like to play couch co-op games together. Um, uh, Along the same line as like the uh, true crime 
stuff, we really like murder boxes, yeah. like the oh, murder yes. mystery boxes <laughs> that you get to solve a case. They also make a bunch of cool ones of like escape the room or puzzles. We just started doing this recently, so I think these are going to be like a, a new favorite hobby. I'm not going to lie. I yeah. didn't expect to like it as much as I did. <laughs> I was expecting the last one to last like to like defy us for a little longer but we just all the four of us sat down at a table and just cranked out the entire thing in one sitting and i'm honestly pretty damn proud of us yeah i was impressed i do think it took us like four hours but we did do it that's still one sitting it's not like we didn't have breaks in there and i'm pretty sure that's about how long a murder box is supposed to take yeah um Mm. yeah other yeah it's supposed to be like four to six hours Mm -hmm. it's like a D &D session other cute domestic stuff we do uh, is we often cook together. Yeah, we talked like before sharing. about that as a date night thing, but that's I would consider that also yeah. a hobby at this point. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like you have to eat anyway, but it's nice to like spend <laughs> some time with each other or like we'll wander in and out of the kitchen while somebody's cooking or like one person does prep work and like you have an assistant and then you have someone to talk to, which is really nice. Especially like elaborate meals. We tend to do those yeah. over the weekends rather than during the week. That's what I've done with my quarantine time period over the past several months is I've just gone out Surprising and no one. learned a bunch of really elaborate recipes where it's like, I'm going to take over the kitchen for all of Saturday. Everyone has to figure out their lunch in advance because you can't get in. <laughs> all yeah. of your recipes were Indian food. Your, your scratch made naan. Oh, just, oh my God. I feel so victorious so for figuring that out. Yeah, yeah, and also Sage and Iris bake together and I'm really into it. Super it's really cute. Fun. It's super we cute. need to make more cookies soon. We need to make more cookies for general. We don't have purposes. enough sweet things. We, we should make more never... cookies today. Yeah. We can do that. It's true. There's time. Yeah. yeah, we still never made that snickerdoodle cookie recipe that I really wanted to try, and we have all the oh, ingredients yeah. for. So. Oh, oh sweet. Yeah, yeah let's go. do it. Yeah. Anyway, other hobbies that involve going outside that we haven't done for a while going and exploring museums, going considering anywhere. we live in the city and have access to just a. It, an ungodly amount of museums, more museums than I have ever been in the same city as in my entire life. And there are still so many left to go. Our last group outing was to the Met, was it not? For that night exhibit? Guggenheim or the Met? The, we went to the Met for the, the for nights, the last night about Maximilian. Oh, that one. Yeah. yeah I think that was yeah. the last time we like went anywhere as a group. And it was a long time ago now. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Lord. The last time we, the three of us, went someplace right before we all locked down, um, Sun, Fox, and I went out and got tattoos. I don't think that's necessarily a hobby, but we do like to do it's that kind together. Of a hobby. It's sort of a hobby. I, of think a it's hobby. A ho- I think it qualifies as a hobby for you all now. <laughs> I would yeah. say so. Uh, other domestic stuff that we do together, um, reading aloud. We do like a True. story. Yeah, time. I we read out loud. Read a book a chapter at a time. I'm currently uh, reading my favorite obscure fantasy series to them one chapter at a time, uh, which is... It's not going to be obscure anymore by the time you're finished blogging about I'm it. I'm running a campaign. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you want to drop the name oh, of the author? Yeah, uh, my favorite <laughs> series is the... Chronicles of the Kenserath by PC Hodgel. Um, I also run another podcast about it. Um, Do a plug. The podcast Bound in Pale Leather, which I run <laughs> with my mother. Um, and it's real niche content, guys. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun to do. And so I've been reading those books out loud to my beautiful patient partners. <laughs> and I like 
I really like reading out loud, though, so I, I, I appreciate you guys being willing to be an audience. I like it a lot. They're good it's books. We're not forced enjoyable. against our will. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Do we want to talk about why shared hobbies are good? Because I have some thoughts. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think that would be a good way to tie a bow on this bit. Yeah, we talked a lot about um, the importance of like dates and spending time together, but I think hobbies that are like more casual are also really good. Yeah, I particularly like the extra understanding of everyone that I get from doing shared activities, especially with board games, especially things like hidden roll games. I feel like I get to understand each of your just like characters and your responses so much better. Yeah, um, it just the I learn something new every time I get stabbed in the back, and it's, it is genuinely <laughs> wonderful. Um, also, I don't think we covered this, but there is a video game called Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, oh, where you have to uh, collectively band together to help a person disarm a bomb. And the if the ruthless efficiency that we have gotten to of getting through all of the challenges is kind of inspiring, honestly. It's a really good way to learn to communicate with a group of people. I highly recommend it to to do it with your partner because it's a you can do it just with two people. I also recommend it if you ever need to like get a group of people on the same page for like a group project or something <laughs> like that. Play this game. It makes you a brutally efficient communicator. I would say brutally efficient is the appropriate word choice there, yeah. Yeah. Also, this is a good one because you can play it digitally with a like a computer one side and a video chat open because you're not supposed to be able to see the bomb anyway. Only one person sees it. So True. distance yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. And any other thoughts on this? I, I have like one more tie it together thought. You have a bow? I have a individual hobbies thing, but not a collective hobbies thing. That's That's fine, too. Yeah. Particularly, one of the reasons I really value hobbies is because I tend to get up in my own head too much for my own good, and having projects to work on really helps me like commit to thinking about something specific, uh, and that, along with making progress, improves my mental state a lot. Um, and I really value writing for that because the, you know, as much as there's the whole initial struggle with like, there's a blank page in front of me and I have to put something on it and I don't know what it's going to be, uh, making progress on a larger project, whether that's editing or writing something new really helps me get out of that headspace and just produce something that I value. Um, and on a similar note, like things like video games or any of the other fun hobbies that we listed, like board games, just they're the same thing. Like sometimes you just need a distraction. You need to stop thinking about whatever, you know, you do for work if that's if that's a struggle for you or about whatever fresh crisis is happening. Yeah. Any of the pick a pick a crisis from the last year. Honestly, it's 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 valuable to be able to be distracted from that for a little while. Absolutely. And also, and this is the last thing I promise, um, I really like having individual hobbies because then we have stuff that we can all collectively come back and talk about because we're saps and eat dinner together and stuff. And it's really cool to be able to be like, hey, I have this exciting thing that I did today or learned today or made progress on. And I always like all of the stuff that we bring to the table like that. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I think the TLDR is that you should go out and get some hobbies, get some solo hobbies, get some hobbies you can share with other people, because I genuinely believe that hobbies are a part of being able to live joyfully. And I really want to like 
just put it out there that you should try to get rid of the notion that you have to be productive and do spend all of your time being productive or being an adult because living joyfully is what makes life worth living and hobbies i think is a part of that that it's was very cute yes. jesus okay it's all right i think that's a good end of this uh, i think that's a good end of this bit <laughs> musical interlude here <laughs> all right friends now we're gonna try out a new segment called fun facts with fox and here are the rules each of us has prepared a topic for fox to tell us about they have five minutes per topic before we move on to the next and they have been able to prepare for each topic for accuracy but most they already knew First up is Sage's question. Sage? The OG fun fact that made it so that I was not allowed to give fun facts. (laughs) Yeah. So this is really kind of the question that started it all. This is the one where we made Fox, where we required Fox to say fun fact before relating anything that they considered a fun fact. So we would know... Uh, what we were in for to emotionally brace for whatever they're about yeah. to say. <laughs> so, um, Fox, tell us about horse fingers. Okay, so I think this fact is becoming increasingly common knowledge, which I'm delighted about because it's horrible and I love it. Um, but I, I want to cl- preface this with first of all, any animal that you look at and think to yourself that it has quote unquote a backward knee relative to how human knees work, that animal is probably walking on like n- instead of a whole foot, they're probably walking on a fingertip or multiple fingertips depending on how many toes they have. Anyway, point is the way horses specifically are designed because they are what's called an odd toed ungulate, um, which means they only have one toe. Their, their limbs are directly analogous to ours, but that was not common knowledge for a long time because, of course, they don't have fingers. So what was discovered is that um, so the hoof bone, which, fun fact, is called a coffin bone, like as in a, a casket. Um, so a hoof bone is analogous to a fingertip. The It's called a distal phalange. You don't need to care about that. And then the, uh, like, what's called a pastern bone, which is right above the hoof, is the first and second phalanges, so, like, proximal and medial phalanges. And then what's called the cannon bone is analogous to a metacarpal or a metatarsal, which, if you look at the back of your hand, the metacarpal is what spans from your first knuckle to your wrist. And, um... (laughs) The knee of a horse's foreleg, fun fact, is made of a bone called the carpus, which is one of the carpal bones in your wrist. Um, And that's what you would look at and call a knee to yourself if you were just looking at a horse without any expertise. The actual knee of a horse is further up the leg, right up near their, uh, right up near the body, because the, um, then they have like, you know, the standard shit, radius, ulna, humerus, etc., femur, tibia, whatever, Um, you know, bones. But the the thing that I did, <laughs> you know, bones. The, the thing that I do really urgently want to share with you guys is that, um, so the way that a horse's foreleg specifically is constructed is that there's a cannon bone, which is again analogous to a metatarsal. I'm sorry, a metacarpal because it's a foreleg. I know what I'm talking about. Um, so a cannon bone is analogous to a metacarpal, and there's only one cannon bone, but there are splint bones that are also metacarpals. So a horse's leg is essentially a middle finger with the pointer and ring finger to support the cannon bone. Horse legs are very, very fragile. Anyone who's ever dealt with a horse knows this. Uh, so it's 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 been known for some time that horses like technically have the the core structure for like three fingers in their leg, but there is an embryonic phase of horse development where they have five 
fingers like it's a very brief phase and it's pretty early on but they do have like the full structure for five and the like outer two just kind of vanish at some point in there and i'm just it's it's super super cool and anyway the long story short of this is that a a hoof like what you would visualize on a horse as like the quote-unquote foot is actually a fingertip bone and is directly analogous to the very tip of your middle finger that was beautiful, and you still have a minute and 46 seconds left. If you Fuck want yeah, it. I have a minute and 46 seconds left. <laughs> so now everyone has to live with the knowledge that if they picture it right, they can just envision horses walking on four middle fingers instead of on four legs. That's correct. And I wish I could rid myself of this knowledge. Just, Thank you, Fox, for this fun fact. Like I said, I think this I is becoming it. increasingly common knowledge, and I just I love it so very much. I've just known this for so long, and hearing this ramble again, I still hate it. <laughs> yep, hate it just as much. <laughs> anyway, this is why we make Fox preface their facts with fun fact, so we can emotionally prepare ourselves. Yep. You just never know what's going to come. All right, Fox, you ready for number two? Hell yeah, I'm ready for number two. Let's go. Could you tell us what cocaine was used for medicinally? Yes. Okay. So um, I want to preface this with like cocaine was originally isolated from a coca plant. Um, it's actual. Oh, I'm going to take a swing at this Latin name. Um, uh, Erythroxylon coca. Sure. Believe me. Um, and <laughs> it was, <laughs> and it was originally used medicinally and as a stimulant, um, sort of recreationally, uh, by the um, indigenous people from where the the plant was is was originally grown. And the thing that I really want to focus on is initially, on the one hand, it was used as a stimulant, sort of like coffee, like you you would um, like chew the leaves and they would uh, like wake you up, they would kind of clear your head, like, you know, caffeine. But you could also... Caffeine, but it's cocaine. <laughs> well, it's not cocaine yet, it's a coca plant, and that's an important difference. <laughs> um, and But it could also be used as a topical anesthetic. So uh, what you could do is you could like either either like grind or chew or whatever, like render the, the leaves of the plant down into a paste, and then you could apply it to an injury, and it would anesthetize the area. And so... Obviously, a bunch of people discovered this. White folks. Let's call a spade a spade real quick here. Um, So a bunch of folks discovered this, and they were like, that seems pretty dope. Let's try some shit out. Um, So then they started to, like, try and fuck around with it and try and isolate it and figure out how to make it work better, because that's what humans do when they find something interesting, is you try to make it more of that thing. And so they isolated it in the 1800s, and then things got kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) Story of the 1800s, and then things got kind of weird. And then stuff got kind of weird. Um, the anesthesia uh, option was was really looked into a lot um, because it was it worked really well as a topical anesthetic. This was after they had isolated it down into cocaine, which is now synthesized through a different method, not directly from coca leaves. And specifically, there was someone named Vasily von Anreps who uh, had like two jars of wa- of water, and one had like salt water in it, and one had like a cocaine salt dissolved into it. Um, and then he had a live frog and he dipped one of the frog's legs in each and let it soak in the solutions for a little while and then he quote unquote stimulated the frog's legs in assorted ways that means he poked the frog with a needle um and uh discovered that one of the frog's legs that had been in the salt water reacted normally and the other one that had been in the cocaine didn't uh there was also a guy named carl collar who uh proved decided to prove that it could be used for ophthalmology and applied a solution of cocaine salts to his own eyeball and then pricked it with a pin in front of a medical college to prove oh, that it worked boy. as an anesthesia. Anyway. No. <laughs> um, 
This oh, is why I oh. checked things ahead of time because I forgot Carl Collar's name. Um, uh, oh, that, that's yeah. I guess you would definitely remember the other thing. Yeah. Huh? Um, Thanks. I hate it. <laughs> I know, right? And it also, of course, people started to use it as cocaine, like as cocaine. Um, you might be familiar with uh, Sherlock Holmes in the original Conan Doyle stories uh, was known for a 7% solution of cocaine to like, quote unquote, manage boredom. Um, that was super common. It was just like available at drugstores. You could just fucking buy it. Coca-Cola did have coca leaves soaked in it to extract the like original compound, not direct cocaine. They weren't putting direct cocaine in it, but that is why it's called Coca-Cola. Um, they had to take it out after the Pure Food and Drug Act in the early 1900s. That's not important. Additional fun fact, they used cocaine to treat morphine addiction. <laughs> so if you were addicted to morphine, your doctor would put you on an intravenous dose of cocaine. Holy shit. <laughs> and then you would be prescribed cocaine and you could buy it from a drugstore for real fucking cheap. And then you would use it to manage your fucking morphine addiction. The reason for this is that a bunch of doctors, including motherfucker supreme sigmund freud <laughs> had the official stance that cocaine was completely safe and had no ill effects whatsoever and specifically um freud's official stance was that it had no ill effects it didn't have any after effects like a hangover like you might get from alcohol it uh did not cause addiction and um he put out an entire work about this he felt so strongly about this that sigmund freud put out an entire work called uber coca and it includes the description of cocaine uh, cocaine's effect that it was in no way seconds. different <laughs> uh -huh, I'm, I'm almost done it was quote in no way different from the normal euphoria of a healthy person and the reason that this is my wow. very favorite thing is that i think it raises more acute questions about the mental health of sigmund freud than any other single sentence i've ever seen in my life <laughs> nailed it eight seconds to spare it was perfect <laughs> fuck yeah <laughs> I think we might need to shorten the amount of time you have to make it more harder. stressful. <laughs> we'll just shorten it by one minute every time we do the segment. This is not the fastest I don't know, they're I really can talk. channeling that like pure manic energy. And I think it's very appropriate for particularly this segment. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gotta say your meds are working now, right? <laughs> Fuck yeah, my meds are working now. <laughs> all right, Iris, all you right. ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, time to dip into some of our favorite queer history. Light of my life, joy of, joy of my days, bane of my existence. Tell us about the pantless party. Okay, so for context for this, you need to know that a dude existed named Baron von Steuben. You might recognize him as the guy who turned a bunch of jackasses in Valley Forge into a functional army. He was Prussian. That's all you need to know. Actually, you need to know one more thing. And that additional thing is that he was um, not exiled, but like politely encouraged to leave at least a couple countries based on quote unquote um like hmm actually what's the, what's the phrase exactly uh unseemly affection for his own sex so like i get it i get it like it, it, the the viewpoints of queer people have changed a lot over time periods like sex as action versus sex as identity very different but this guy was gay let's just admit that real fast and so he was brought into Valley Forge by George Washington to turn the American army into a functional unit because it was just a bunch of jackasses with muskets. And he was brought to Valley Forge in 1778. It was a horrible winter. Everyone was miserable. And the thing that was kind of shocking was that this guy who spoke zero English, uh, except for a handful of curse words, and had to be entirely translated for by a couple of assigned aides de camp, 
he was really popular with the troops because he was really <laughs> likable and he like was a soldier. He was a career military man and everyone like recognized a certain amount of kindred spiritedness. Also, there was a guy named Benjamin Walker who, upon meeting Baron von Steuben, Steuben, von Steuben's comment on him was that it was like an angel had come down to Earth. Walker stayed with him for the rest of his life and inherited his estate. That's a side story, though. <laughs> anyway, so during the whole debacle that was the winter of 1778 into 1779, um, Baron von Steuben decided that everyone needed a little bit of a morale pick-me-up. Um, and so he arranged for one of his other aides to camp, one of the people he had brought with him, because he, of course, showed up with, like, three pretty young men. Very heterosexually showed up with three pretty young men and then fell in love with a fourth. And so he had one of his aides to camp put out an announcement that he was inviting all of the young officers who were really struggling under the circumstances of the revolution to come to a party in his quarters because he had an actual cabin. Like, this this is also part of the whole, like, Valley Forge was a shit show and nobody was sleeping in good arrangements except for the higher-ups. Um, and so he was like, everyone can come to, like, my quarters, which are actually nice. I have good rations. You guys can, like, come and hang out. Criteria, um, n- quote, none shall be admitted who does not have... Who has a whole pair of breeches, which is why this is colloquially known as the pantless party, because you are not allowed to come in if you are wearing an intact pair of pants. So some people tore their pants, but cloth was kind of in short supply. So most people just took their pants off at the door and joined the party that way. The other thing that is really important to me that people are aware of is that the people who were assigned to Baron von Steuben as his translators and aides de camp by George Washington were General Nathaniel Green, who spoke French and therefore helped translate, um, John Lawrence, who did not speak French, but was uh, one of Washington's aides de camp and therefore was helping out, and Alexander Hamilton, who spoke French, helped translate and was also one of Washington's aides de camp. Um, the reason that this is important to me to, that people know is is that it matters enormously to me that people know that like we all sit around and pretend that the founding fathers were like serious adults who knew what the fuck they were doing and like definitely 100% all three of those people were at this party. That's the end of my story. That's so good. (laughs) Wait, what about the, um, weren't there something to do with shots um oh yes actually this uh, first of all this was our country's first underwear party this was also the first time at a party that we have a historical record in our uh, in the country of america that um flaming shots were served we do not know exactly what they were but they were called salamanders at the time and um all we really know from the time about quote-unquote salamanders is that that probably meant they were on fire and also because as a superior officer, Von Steuben would have been very few, one of very few people with access to a large amount of alcohol, uh, like sufficient to throw a party. So anyway, there was there was like this one time during Valley Forge where like for morale, there was an underwear party with flaming shots. Flaming shots, the only true patriotic <laughs> drink. Honestly, as a side note, um, Baron von Steuben and his uh, men showed up in red coats, and there is a anecdotal story that they were almost arrested at the port for being British, <laughs> despite the fact that none of them spoke any English. In- That's what's up. Incredible. <laughs> Thank you for that anecdote, babe. I love this. Story. A genuinely fun fact, unlike the a genuinely fun one. fact. Yeah, or I mean, I think the cocaine facts are also very fun. <laughs> Dip a frog in cocaine. Yeah, that is, that is a fun fact. <sighs> Dip an eyeball in cocaine. Hey, oh. hey Fox, when yeah. you're when you're editing, please do not cut out this long sigh. <sighs> Valid. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so this has been fun facts with Fox. 
You can find more of these on our Patreon. Yeah, I. Um, you can also find more of these by being in my vicinity for more than an hour. <laughs> also that. <laughs> <Can't> confirm. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. We love you and your fun facts, even if some of them leave us scarred for life. I think they're all very fun. Scarred is a little heavy-handed. I would say that's debatable. I feel mildly, I... mildly distressed. Horses are an <laughs> evolutionary train wreck, and I, I, they're very fun. Cheetahs are basically slinkies, so like, it's not like horses are alone in this. All right, you had your fun facts. You gotta stop now. No more. <laughs> Spare us. <laughs> Time to switch over to answering an audience question. Just as a reminder, you can send us questions via email at quapplenetwork at gmail.com. That's Q-U-A-P-L-E network at gmail.com or through any of our social medias or via Patreon. This week, our question comes from Catherine, one of our first Patreon subscribers, which is very exciting. As a reminder, our Patreon subscribers get bumped to the top of the question queue. So if you're a subscriber and you have a burning question, we'll get to you right off the bat. So Catherine's question is, it's hard to be in a relationship where one person or people have chronic pain and another person doesn't. How do you manage that? Now, to level with you, this is going to be a greatest hits of managing chronic pain because this is a big topic and we are almost certainly going to come back to it at a later date in more depth. We really are going to get back to this at a later date, definitely, because we sat around and talked about it and we ended up having like an hour-long conversation. So um, specifically, we're going to focus on chronic pain in relationships today. Yeah, because we're going to talk about chronic pain, but also disabilities more generally down the road. It's definitely going to be at least one main topic, if not more. And if we get any further audience questions, please feel free to submit them. However, uh, living with chronic pain. Fox, do you want to level yeah. set at all? So for a little bit of um, stage dressing, as it were, Iris and I both have what I would class as physical disabilities. Yeah, uh, I have a hypermobility disorder that affects a lot of my connective tissue and can cause me it tends to cause me pain all the time. Um, and in addition to that, has some various other fringe problems. I'm wearing a sling right now because I closed a window and something cracked really loudly in my shoulder and it hurt a lot. And that's that's pretty common for me. Um, Iris, do you want to talk a little bit about your situation? Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at seven years old. So I've been... Oh, there's an actual name for my disorder. It's Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Sorry, I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Um, Yeah, so I've been living with chronic pain since I was seven. Uh, Somewhere in there, I eventually got a fibromyalgia diagnosis tacked on, especially once um, my my juvenile rheumatoid arthritis went more into remission. Uh, So that's mostly what I deal with now is just that like kind of systemic chronic pain. And uh, both um, Fox and I deal with these disabilities that also fall into the category of not just chronic pain, but also invisible disabilities, Mm -hmm. um, which unfortunately, a lot of chronic pain you can't see. Yeah. So yeah, we have some strategies for how to navigate both have like having these disabilities, but also um, like navigating your relationships and your partnerships with with these. Because I mean, to be blunt, it it can be hard to like navigate um, the initial phases of a relationship. Like if someone is not used to working around someone who has chronic pain, like those initial phases can be kind of rocky. And like, I think there's a lot to be said for like a high degree of honesty and compassion and patience from all parties initially, as everyone involved kind of learns a new language. Yeah. I think is the way I would put that. Yeah, there was definitely, yeah. 
there was definitely a learning curve for me as well, because uh, Iris and I worked together for a pretty long time before I knew anything about your disability. So I was used to assigning you to lift heavy items or be on your feet all day, sometimes for multiple shifts, because that was just kind of the situation that we were in at the time. Food service. And then when we became... Uh, better friends and eventually became partners, I learned that this was something that you had been facing literally the entire time. And I had to radically recalibrate my just assessment of you as a person and like what you were. um, Like what's safe for you to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a good way to sum it up. And son, you, did you want to talk Um, Because you have kind of a different situation than like, here's like my base level of pain and I go up from there where you tend to have flare ups instead. Yeah, I have a slightly different thing because I don't really live with pain on a day to day basis. It's more like flare ups and different stuff. I have endometriosis, which is uh, super fun in every way. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And it's relatively managed on a day to day basis. But I do have cysts that happen randomly at will because whatever this got away from me um but i also like have like three to seven days out of each month that are incredibly uncomfortable and can sometimes be immobilizing it but it really like depends so mine really take me off guard so it's a little different from like yeah like fox and iris like wake up every morning with pain and i get surprised which is really fun (laughs) Yeah, there's pros and cons to both of those. Yeah, occasionally the universe just decides to punch you in the face. Yeah, on the one hand, it's easier to learn to ignore it if it's there all the time. On the other hand, having days where I wasn't in pain sounds nice. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, like, they're very different things. But I definitely think, like, the big thing that I've learned is, like, I know how to take care of myself and I know what I need. But the most important part of, like, living with people who have chronic pain is starting to get to know what they're, like, easy first three things are when they're in a lot of pain. And so, like, if they're really feeling bad in the morning, it's like, oh, have you tried, like, your tea that makes you feel a little better? Have you – do you want your heating pack? Do you want me to throw that in the microwave for you? Is there, like, a food that would make you happy today? Like, what what can I do to, like, help support you in, like – making you feel better faster. Yeah, and I think um, a big part of uh, being a partner who lives with chronic pain is uh, learning how to be honest about it and learning how to communicate it effectively. Because like Sage said, we'd known each other for a really long time before he knew that I had disabilities at all. And part of that is it's a very common thing and it's very understandable that some folks with disabilities uh, who have the ability to hide it because it's invisible choose to hide it because um, there's a huge stigma against it and you might not be promoted. You might not uh, get that job. And like, I'm really in a place where I I consider it to be a huge privilege that I'm able to be out as disabled at work right now. And that's something that I do a lot of advocacy around. But because of that, you might have a partner who or a friend or a um, or a partner or something who might come into it and not know anything about disabilities or might not even know that you're disabled. And there's a lot of learning that needs to be done there. Um, But also, everybody needs to unlearn internalized ableism. It's just a part of our society. And even as a disabled person, there's a lot of work to be done to like learn yeah. how to climb out from that because <laughs> it's hard it's it's hard every day yeah especially since um i i how do i want to put this i've always had chronic pain issues and joint problems and stuff like that i didn't realize that was atypical until probably about four years ago 
And so for a really extended period of time, I worked really hard to be compassionate with the people around me, but I was really, really hard. I was like brutally hard on myself. Uh, for most of college, my my strict policy was if I wasn't running a fever or too injured to walk, I was going to class. I think I missed maybe two days of classes per semester through my entire college career, absolute maximum, including every illness, every injury, every time I passed out, all of it. I also faint a lot because of my disorder. Um, <laughs> so that meant that especially after I got to a point where I couldn't just sort of ignore my disability away anymore. I, I used to work as an EMT, and um, I'm sure it's a shock to hear that working as an EMT with joints that don't work. I hurt myself a lot really badly, and I'm probably not ever going to be as healthy as I was before I started that job again. And like once I was in that position where I had to pay attention to things, it was really hard for me to learn to be honest with the people around me about being in pain because I was used to ignoring it and I was used to pretending that it was fine. And so like that is, I would say, the predominant responsibility of like a person who has chronic pain, it's a, you can't expect someone to read your mind. You can't expect them to intuit that the reason you're struggling to like do dishes today is because standing hurts. And like on the flip side, it's the responsibility of a person who doesn't have chronic pain and has a partner who's learning to tell them that to like be compassionate and work hard to like deal with that internalized ableism response of like, well, but you know, you said you'd do this chore or like you have to like pull equal weight in the household or whatever. And like taking time on both sides to really kind of sit with that response and like learn to get around it. I, I still guilt trip myself all the time for when I'm like, I can't do any more work today because I can't sit up. Those are hard things to learn to admit, and you have to learn to admit them because the people around you can't read your mind. Yeah, one of the hardest things for me since I met all of my partners in the service industry uh, is undoing all of the bullshit that the service industry teaches you about working through the pain, which is just, you know, a more extreme variation on what all of society does, which is if you are not feeling great, you work through it because that's what you do. You work for the capitalist overlords until you die. Um, How do you really feel? But don't, uh, don't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the amount of um, ableism that I've internalized and had to unlearn over the past weeks and months and that I'm still dealing with um, is staggering. I mean, like, in addition to the fact that uh, both Fox and Iris have disabilities, uh, Iris, you got hit by a fucking truck and were at work the, like two <laughs> days later. Oh I got into a car accident and came back to work two days later. Like, people shouldn't be expected to do that. And no. it makes me mm -hmm. genuinely angry that we live in a society and work and have worked in workplaces that just don't see disabilities as a valid a valid thing at all and that aren't accommodated and aren't even acknowledged in most cases. Absolutely. I think it's also important to say like people who live with a high degree of pain too, it's also like we have to give leeway to other people who are also in pain because it mm -hmm. makes you, you know, like the ableism around us and our capitalist society and all of these things. And also sometimes your parents make you really like jaded you yeah. know, and they'll tell you, like, mm. your pain is normal. That's a standard every person thing. And, like, not everyone handles pain the same way. And, like, you can't know what another person is going through. 
Yeah. And like, yeah. it also doesn't matter if they're not in as much pain as you. It might be debilitating for them. And like, that just is what it is. Yeah. The impulse Absolutely. to compare pain, I think, is a really important thing to avoid if yeah. you're someone who lives with chronic pain or if you if you have a loved one who lives with chronic pain. Because like, A, if you're in pain all the time, then obviously your pain threshold is going to be different. And it's important to be compassionate to the fact that someone else not being in pain all the time is a good thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I understand that it can be sometimes hard to deal with, but it is a good thing, and you should want that for your loved ones. Absolutely. <laughs> but on the other hand, like I think that one of the things that I, as a medical professional, before I had to like actually learn to talk about this, about my own physical health, one of the things I learned to ask people as a medical professional was like, are you in a lot of pain for you? Like, what, what is your mm. pain tolerance like? Because like my pain tolerance is insane. You can do whatever you want to me and I'll be able to sit there and take it. So like, you know, if a doctor's like, this is going to hurt a little, I'll be like, okay. And like, it's important to be able to ask people who you know are in pain a lot, like, okay, you're saying you're in a lot of pain. I need you to be a little bit more descriptive because like your pain tolerance is really high. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that ended up affecting me is that a few years back, I slipped while well, I was still in college. I slipped on ice and went down really bad on one knee. And one of the terrible ways that ableism fucked me up is I was like, oh, okay, this hurts a little bit, but like I can still walk. Not and it funny. ended up, I probably broke something. Oh, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I still live with that injury. And it's not that bad. Like it's not debilitating, but like you better fucking believe I noticed that on a day to day basis. And I wish I'd gone and seen someone. I wish I'd taken it seriously. And I society can just do so much better at yeah believing pain is a thing and acknowledging and accommodating that Absolutely. obligate mention here of the fact that we all grew up in the american healthcare system and yeah. so <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, that's yeah. an ongoing problem until literally this calendar year when i'm 23 years old i have never had good enough health insurance to deal with any chronic health problems and so, like, obligate mention of the fact that the United States health system really fucking, mm, just the cherry on top of this whole ableist Sunday. Yeah. Please, America, give us that sweet, sweet single payer. I, I would take anything. I would take a government <laughs> option, baby steps, I'll, anything. And I just want to pull this back around to managing chronic pain within relationships yeah. real quick. Mm -hmm. So um, here are Iris's top three tips for chronic pain in relationships. One which we've covered a lot is uh, dealing with and unlearning internalized ableism and just working on that with patience, compassion, and understanding. Try not to crucify yourself. Yeah, with yourself and with your with your partners. Two, uh, learn about fluctuating capacity. This is something that my therapist taught me and that I've been working on really continuously for the last, I don't know, six months. I can commit to doing something today on a good pain day that I won't be able to do tomorrow on a bad pain day. Uh, and everybody, to a certain extent, has fluctuating capacity. We all have good days and bad days. That's especially the case with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to understand what your capacity looks like um, and also learn what things are able to be dropped um, and what things are absolute necessities to get done and just uh, figure out and dial in on what you can commit to and what you um, aren't able to commit to. And I especially want to highlight the fact that like this is something that's really hard. <laughs> 
and is something that like is a continuous work in progress, I'm a yes person. I always want to do everything for everyone all the time. So a big part of me learning about fluctuating capacity um, is me learning to say no sometimes on my good days so that I have more spoons and more capacity on my bad days. And I think that's really important in a relationship because, I mean, like I mentioned this earlier, but if you have chronic pain... And that means that, for example, on a bad pain day, you can't stand long enough to do the dishes or like I do all of our audio editing. If there's a day where I can't sit because my back is too messed up, it can be really hard and scary to learn to tell your partner that or partners because it it feels like they're going to be angry at you for letting them down and for like expecting them to do everything for you because like you're a delicate wilting flower. And it's easy to get into that headspace. And I think it's... Which you're not. You're not a delicate... Well, you're not. A preface with that. But it, it it's so important to be able to have an explicit conversation with your partners about that fear. Like, I straight up remember when we started talking about doing this podcast, I sat everyone down and I was like, there are days where I can't sit at a desk and I can't really stand. I have to lie down because, like, something is just wrong with X joint and I just can't... I. I can't handle how much pain I'm in if I do X, Y, Z thing. And like, I'm really scared that you guys are going to be upset with me if I feel like I can't work and I'm letting you down. And like being able to have that conversation and be honest about it was really terrifying from my angle. But like, it meant that we're all operating on the same page and we're all operating with this like understanding of they want me to be okay. Like everyone is working toward the same goal. And that means that some days some people do more and some days those people do less. And like, that's okay. And being able to discuss the concept of fluctuating capacity with the people you love and making sure that everyone is on the same page is like absolutely fucking crucial to like having a relationship while you have chronic pain. A hundred percent. Would you guys say that's accurate? Yes. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then I have one more tip if you uh, live with chronic pain and uh, want to figure out how to navigate your relationship with your partners and chronic pain. Um, It's learn how to do the real kind of self-care, which what I'm talking about with that is there's like multiple different kinds of self-care. And one of them is like the industry of self-care that's very like commercialized. And it's all about like spa days and treat yourself and all those different things. And listen, they're that can be really enjoyable, really good for you and really fun sometimes. But there's also this like real dig in deep type of self care. That's the hard stuff, the unpretty stuff, the stuff that's like, okay, I am going to learn to take my pain medication before I start feeling really bad, or I'm going to learn how to put on a brace before I actually do something stupid. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm going to learn to turn off the TV because blue like a half hour earlier because then I can get to sleep and sleep is really important for my chronic pain not flaring up or whatever it is that literally helps your physical and mental health and well-being is frequently not pretty um, but it is really important and it's important to learn how to do that for yourself but also to learn how to communicate those things to your partners and communicate the things that they can do to help because of course they love you they want to be able to help and they can't fix your chronic pain so giving them little things they can latch on to that they can do when they know you're in pain like yeah you're in pain you're 
you shouldn't be getting up and walking over to the microwave and standing there for three minutes while your heating pack uh, is nuked. So like, I struggle to let people do things for me. This is um, a challenge, personally. Not to at yeah. you, but we're adding you. Yeah, yeah. I know. the others are constantly I mean, like, "Hey, do you want to put a brace on that? Us? Do you want a heating pack? Do yeah, you wanna not. We do love that you, right and now? we want you not to hurt." Yeah. yeah. So like Sun said at the beginning, it's learning how to do the like learning how to communicate those things to your partner of, yeah, they can heat up the water for tea for you. They can um, put like get you an ice pack. They can get you your brace. That Those little things matter a lot in a relationship with somebody with chronic pain. And um, learning how to take care of yourself is also learning how to teach the people around you how to take care of you as well. And there's no shame in that. Sounds yeah. like a good stopping point, honestly. Yeah, honestly. Like and that on was that a note, nice hard I have, cut. I'm sorry, well, I have one more thing. I have one more thing to like just No, but that was your three. You said three. I said three. It's not another tip. It's just like a PSA mm-hmm. for if you're a person living with chronic pain, living with any disabilities of any kind, from one disabled person to another, please know you are not lazy, you are not a burden, and you deserve to have your pain taken seriously, especially by your partners and your loved ones. I would say that last one is the key. Yeah. Hmm. As a person with chronic pain, it's important that you take your own pain seriously because it will mean that your partners take your pain seriously. Yeah. So just like, you're doing a great job. We love you. We're very proud you of you. Valid. We're very proud of you. You're doing a great job. Take some Advil and get a heating pack. And on that, <laughs> actually, I'm going to, on that note, I'm going to put ice on my shoulder. <laughs> All right. Now we can tie it up. Sorry. I just wanted to do that little PSA. Yeah. Cool. All right. That's been us, the Quapple. As always, a big thank you to Molly of Geography for the use of her song Hanahaki Bloom for our music. Come find us on Twitter or Instagram at ATWR underscore podcast, on Tumblr at quapple-network, or even by email at quapple-network at gmail.com. Toss us a question or an advice topic. We love hearing from you. And of course, go ahead and check out our Patreon at the ATWR podcast if you want to tip Fox for editing work. If you love our podcast, please share with your friends and leave a comment wherever you listen. And as always, remember, we believe in you. Bye. Bye. Bye.